Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. All right, welcome to another edition of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Zach Bush, co-founder of Madroom Hospitality, here with us. It was probably like 2009 or 10. Mm-hmm. Paul Fuller, who's who's my one of my no, not one of my my best friend and uh, business partner now, is a real estate developer, or, or was at that time, still is, but primarily, and he had really you know become a pioneer in Little Havana. And at that time, uh, he uncovered the history of Ball and Chain with a local historian, Dr. Paul George. Yeah, I love uh, him. He's great. Yeah, exactly. A treasure in Miami. Bill calls me up, I'm, you know, and he says, Zach, I have this great property. It was Ball and Chain. Look at all the history. It was amazing. We got to bring it back to life. And while it sounded amazing, I just, you know, and he knew I had the nightlife background at that point. Marketing sounded amazing. There was no way I could really do it. I was, you know, working with my family. So mm-hmm. fast forward, you know, to 2011 or 12, my brother and I had an exit from the waste and recycling business. I always say it was not a uh, go buy a yacht and a penthouse type money. It right. was someone offers you a dollar five for something worth a dollar. You think long and hard in an industry that was becoming more and more challenging, both with regulations, both with the and additionally, the giant companies really controlling price uh, in, in a legal way. But just, you know, it just it became very challenging. And so we made the uh, decision at that time to exit that business. And we were always going to work. And, and you know, it was not certainly like I said, all right, we're good now. We had, you mm-hmm. know, I had to figure out what was next. And at that time, Bill Fuller came back to me with the ball and chain idea. And it was really kind of now or never. And so you've had conversations with my brother before. Um, you know, he, he's a very bright guy. Business school went to Wash U in, in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, garbage trucks were very linear. You know, you, you charge X, you fill up a route, you have enough money, you buy another truck. You know, hospitality, you can pro forma all you want, right? And um, there's just no way. Yes, you can make smart decisions, definitely. And you can set yourself up for success. Right. But at the end of the day, nothing is foolproof, right? You, you, I mean, you, you know that better than anyone. So it was a little bit of a challenge to get him on board. Uh, certainly at that time, there were no new venues in, in Cayocho and in Little Havana that were really driving new audiences to the neighborhood. The neighborhood, you know, Bill Fuller 
you know, as someone that grew up in Miami, I had heard of Little Havana, but I had never really spent a lot of time there. And Bill had really immersed himself in the community. He, in fact, himself lived there for many years. And once he brought, you know, showed me, you know, and we would start going there for lunch and he would give me tours of the neighborhood. You know, it's really like this little darling of a neighborhood and it's only grown, but but the neighborhood is so special because of the community. And I know this is a very long drawn. Oh, I love it. Story, I love it. But um, it really tells how I got there. And so from mm -hmm. all in chain, um, I actually got married there before we opened. I feel like that kind of blessed us a little bit, so to speak. And then we really kind of hit the ground running there. We weren't exactly sure. We, we knew, you know, we wanted it to be affordable and authentic and accessible. Those were the three A's that we focused on. Um, and we wanted the live music. And so we really just kind of built slowly into, you know, seven day a week live music. This is and programming and the whole thing. And we really kind of hit the ground running. And that was really how I got on the ownership side for my first venture. Obviously, I've always loved hospitality and had a initial introduction into the marketing promotion side, which is certainly important because we say that the best decorations in a room are the guests and a full right. venue. I love um, so that's certainly a big piece to the puzzle. And then, you know, with my partners, Bill and Ben, between the three of us, you know, we think we're all great at, at different things. And Bill, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, they're even though Ben's my blood brother, they're, they're both my brothers. Bill and I go back 30 something years. I think that's really been the recipe for our success. And so one thing led to another. And, and here we are. Well, I love it. Look, you've, I love that journey and the arc of that story. And I want to hit on a couple pieces because sure. I love, you know, I'm born and raised here, just like you are. And I think we grew up in the same neighborhood. Like we grew up down by the Pinecrest, you know, yes. area, right? Just, so what, it just wasn't called Pinecrest back then, but like, no, <laughs> right. Down, way down. So, south. I never hung out around Kyocho. You always heard about it. And Correct. maybe we went to like the festival a time. Correct. Right? Um, same with me. Right. And so I want to get back to your buddy. Will calls you. He's like, Hey, ball and chain. I found this place. Did you go take a look at it with him right away? What was that so, first time you walked in? So the first time when he called me, when I was still with the you know waste and recycling business, you know I, I was flattered, and obviously I've always known Bill to be a visionary and and a creative genius, so to speak. Um, and also he's one of those people that when he gets excited about something, you get excited because I always say that there's dreamers and doers in this world, and it's nice when you have someone that's both, or you can surround yourself with people that are both that see stuff that in a different way that you and I might not ever see it. And um, so the first time I didn't really have too much interest because it just wasn't going to happen. It was, you know, it was, we were a small family waste and recycling business. And the idea of me leaving, number one, I wouldn't do that to my family. They needed me and, and you know, Ben needed me. And the, the same token, you know, you know what it's like when you're an entrepreneur, like you, you don't just leave. And certainly when it's a family business. Um, and then the second time, you know, Ben and I had looked at all sorts of different businesses, what we were going to do. And one of the challenges we were having is that all we really knew was garbage trucks and waste and recycling. And the only other thing that I knew was how to throw a good party, right? right. Uh, and so when this opportunity came, it just seemed right. And then as Bill started taking me to the neighborhood, showing me the history that, that, that him and Dr. Paul George had uncovered, I was blown away. Like we found the old, uh, we'd found the old ads of like when Billie Holiday played there, you know, Count oh, wow. Basie, Chet Baker. So like, you know, Miami people always talk about history, but it's not necessarily always preserved as it should be. And, you know, Bill is just marvelous at that stuff. And so, um, you know, I was able to get Ben on board. And then once Ben was on board, he was on board and it was just magic. Yes, we went to see the site. We went to see his vision. And, what was you know, it like when you walked in there, what did it look like when you walked in that first well, time? Well, so 
Ball and Chain originally existed from 1935 to 1957. When it shut its doors in 1957, it had become several different things. And, and, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to get the order right, but it had become a furniture store at one time. It had become another bar at one time. So, you know, it was just it was still when he took the keys back from the last tenant, you know, it had the infrastructure of the old ball and chain, so to speak. But you would never have known it unless you compared it with like some old drawings and, and the whole thing. And so the idea was, let's say ball and chain never closed in 1957. And it kept up with the times, but still stayed authentic and true and real. What would it look like today? And so literally that's what was created that, that everyone sees when, you know, they come and visit us now. Yeah. Cause that's how I felt when I walked in the first time, I was like, wow, I feel like this has been here since that time, which was so, magic. Right. So yeah. what, what did it look? Was it a furniture store? Was it a restaurant when you guys walked no, in? Well, it was time? a furniture store. And then, and then it was like a bar. I, I couldn't even tell you what the bar was called when he took the keys Got back it. from the tenant. I did know at one time, I'm blanking. Um, but as he laid out, you know, and there was really cool stuff. There was original murals on the wall when we peeled back the walls of like a ball and chain. So one cool. of the coolest things that we found there uh, buried in the wall was um, an old ball and chain sign. And it was basically used to cover their uh electrical panel so now we have we have a, a picture hanging over the electrical panel but behind the picture is we took this original sign and it's also hanging on our electrical panel that's so you cool can't, you can't see it but we know it's there and it's very cool so we found some really cool historic stuff even in old, you know, we didn't find it there but i was able to source it you know on ebay an old matchbook from ball and chain from the 1940s mm -hmm. um and so you know it's just been it's been a dream come true. I've always loved jazz and live music, and that was kind of a big part. It's a, it's a part of me that's there. There's, there's other than my family, you know, that's one of the things I'm most proud of in this world. So I want to give now, you found the spot, you start making the plans, now you're getting closer to opening, right? What is that like opening something? That's something I've never done, right? So I talked well, to Ben Potts about this with his Beaker and Gray, and he was like, just, man, it was like a year of stuff we didn't know was going to happen. What was it like for you all? Because that's not where... Well, I can tell you even not that it's more important than an opening, but even more panic is my wedding was there. Right. So I was literally freaking out because I had never opened a restaurant or bar. Mm -hmm. um, so as you know, like whatever can go wrong kind of does go wrong, especially your first time around. You make mistakes, right? You got to learn from them. We all make mistakes. So I was very panicky because even like i don't even think we had like the soda machines like until like the 11th hour and obviously there's no canceling a wedding for a venue not being ready yeah, they're coming either way right so that was the first mission is getting it ready for it was very stressful it was some you know it's also admittedly like i had never been on that side of it you know from everything from furniture to the sound system, lighting, working bathrooms, you know, stuff breaks that isn't supposed to break. Furniture doesn't fit as, the, as if it was exactly supposed to fit. So there's a ton of audibles, which, you know, listen, you got to be able to make audibles in any business, but um, with the stress of a wedding and then the opening and also, you know, we wanted it to be perfect because we had been advertising that, we, you know, we'd created a good buzz that ball and chain was coming to the neighborhood. And, you know, there was lots of good teasers and this was going to be the first sneak peek that anyone got to it. And not that it was like some crazy big wedding. I think it was only like 200 people. It wasn't, you know, still a good size, but nothing yeah. like wasn't like opening a restaurant where you have tastings and this and that. So we kind of, in that regard, we had a little bit of an advantage because we got a little bit of a dry run with real guests 
and real guest experience. And it was cool because I was able to bring in, you know, some incredible bartenders, mixologists that, you know, you wouldn't normally have at a wedding, so to speak. After the wedding, you know, we, we, we saw what worked, what didn't work, called some additional audibles. And I think like two weeks later, we had like our official grand opening. Um, and at that time- What do you remember from that, that grand opening? I'm always, uh, you know, you've worked, you've got this vision, you put the vision in place, you've got the furniture, everything's there, you've tested it with your own wedding, which is very brave. Right. Well, <laughs> well I knew no matter what, my wife would still love me. So yeah. I was, I was good at that part right there. Yeah, so exactly. The doors open and you all are standing there. Is it like a flood of people coming in because from your promoter? Well, no, days? It's interesting. So unlike most, I don't want to say most hospitalities, but unlike, you know, most nightlife driven venues, you know, bought one of the things that drew us to the community was Kyocho gets a massive amount of tourists during the day. So we really created a daytime experience that I think initially, you know, moved slowly because the tourists weren't used to it, but they saw this vibrant, brand new looking, I mean, brand new venue, old, old, authentic looking. And we had the misters and, you know, it was very inviting and the doors open. We didn't have daytime music at that time. No one in the neighborhood had daytime music at that time. And slowly but surely, and, and, you know, it just started working. And then I think originally to start, we were only open Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. I've always believed that um, unless you know that you're going to have a crowd every night, you're better off to do Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I've always believed in programming backwards. You got to start with Saturday, make sure Saturday's successful, Friday, make sure Friday's successful, and then Thursday. And then after that, we literally moved backwards Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, and then Sunday to get to the seven-week programming. And then, you know, the neighborhood continued and continues to thrive. And then we made the decision to start offering daytime music, which took some convincing um, because music is expensive. Mm -hmm. And it's just been real interesting because it was one of those things that we knew was not going to make money. We just knew it at, at that time, especially. And then you fast forward now to, let's say, five years, you know, even though, you know, some of it was lost with COVID and whatever. Now, like almost everyone has music during the daytime. That's amazing, right? It's a good. It's like the amenity you have to have to create that ambiance where people will just hang out and, and remember it. Yeah, and one of the one of the other things I'm reminded of as you and I are speaking that is interesting too is I grew up. One, one of my, you know, my father was a huge influence, is a huge influence in my life. One of the things that he introduced me to was jazz music in our family. So from a, from a very uh, young age, we listened to jazz, and I remember I used to ask him to change the radio station in the car, and he'd be like, "Nah, man, this is this is cool. See if you can follow the tune." And now I found myself doing the same thing to my children, who are probably cursing me in their head, you know, wanting to hear yeah. what or whatever and like, bring back dj zach what exactly was exactly, <laughs> exactly um so and and why i mentioned that as i recall is that um there my family used to take us to new york and you know, the village vanguard and all these great places you know to, to where you listen and respect the jazz and so at that time you know and ball and chain had a rich history in jazz with, with incredible jazz artists playing there we knew we wanted to honor that tradition with live jazz at that time in miami we were and i i, I truly believe that we were the first to kind of help shift the jazz time to be more accessible. We did jazz at that time from six to nine, or and then it ended up being from six to 10. And at that time, no one in Miami did jazz that early. It was always like late. And I remember thinking that my dad always complained that like, why do they have this jazz? I mean, it doesn't start till nine, 10 at night. It's too late for me, da, 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 da. And so now you see a lot more jazz that was always here, but played at earlier times. And I really think that Ball and Chain was one of the first movers to help kind of shift that from like late night to like, you know, a little bit earlier. Um, so it's like, the only place I can remember were like the Van Dyke and Jazzed, and those were always right. like late, 
later right, night, late, right? late, late, you know, and, and the fact that we're able to honor that tradition from the original ball and chain, it's just something that that's, was super important to us then and, and still is now. So looking back now over the five year history you have or more almost now, was there something you would have changed at the beginning now knowing what you know now, or were you say, you know, we did it the right way? Um, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I think that, that I don't have any regrets. Let's put it that way. What I would say is that one of the most important things that I've learned, you know, and I had a business background prior, but um, hospitality is is its own beast. Number one, you're only as good as your team. And I would say that in, in any business, of course, but I think it's so critical in hospitality because, you know, everyone has some sort of interaction with the guest, whether it's the chef in the kitchen who's, you know, or someone that's plating the food or the dishwasher, or of course, your front of house, you really need people that care. I think originally I probably made some, and again, this is not, everyone served a purpose and, and did a great right. job. I'm fond of everyone that was there, but I think one of the things that I've learned is to care less about experience and certainly less about nightlife experience. I don't even look for people with nightlife experience. I'd rather have someone with restaurant experience, but really more than anything is that it, you, you can't, someone could have all the experience, hospitality experience in the world. But if they don't care, right, if they don't care, ultimately, that is going to show through. And so there's no science to it. But we try, my team tries, and we have, I think right now we have the best team that I've ever had. I'm super proud of it. It's proud of them. They are all so engaged and they really care. Of course, they make mistakes. I make mistakes, right? Uh, but you have to be able to, certainly for me as, as a leader, to own them. And to, you know, you have to be able to say my bad or I'm sorry, or you were right, I was wrong, mm -hmm. or I didn't handle this ideally in, 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 this, in, in the heat of the moment, what could I have done better? And so I think, you, you know, one of the things that I, that, that I wish I would have done sooner rather than later is really identify that caring attribute, whatever it is. You know, I think that that really has a tremendous impact on really probably could be applied to any business, but certainly in hospitality, how high you can soar. Today, I'm honored to have Buzzy Sklar, CEO of Tropical Distilleries, here with us on the show. I always loved hospitality, and it's once it, once you get it in your blood, I'm, I'm sorry you can't do anything else. It, it, it really is. As, as you know, Steve, I mean, I don't have to convince you on that. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's that type of thing. And I always loved the liquor end of the business. Didn't want to be another vodka, scotch, rum too hard to compete. I'm sorry. You know, I could have made the greatest vodka in the world. There's no way I'm competing with Tito's Yep. in Bacardi's backyard. Can't compete with them in, in the rum business. You know, I, I understand the pie is pretty big, but you know, at the end of the day to really, you know, compete in that world would have been tough. And in all honesty, I saw what things like St. Germain did. I saw what uh, Domaine de Canton did in the way of penetrating the market, but I'm not going to lie. I saw what they exited for. Mm -hmm. uh, I still don't know what an elderflower is supposed to taste like, but, you know, they sold to Bacardi for $130 million, you know, St. Germain. Yeah. Um, so I did research for about a year and uh, wanted to be in the liqueur world and couldn't believe with as popular as a flavor as mango was and being a homegrown product here in Florida, uh, no one did one. Mm -hmm. Worked on formulation and worked on uh, getting it out there and, you know, you can't walk down the aisle of Publix and not see a mango iced tea and a mango this and a mango that. And then White Claw launched and their number one flavor was mango. So decided I'm going to be the first mango liqueur out there. 
And how did that come? How did that epiphany hit you? You were just like sitting at uh, home on the pool, I, sipping I something and said, I need this. I did a boatload of research, Steve. I mean, I really did. And I, I probably walked the aisles of Total Wine a thousand times, just looking and looking and searching and all right, there's one of this and there's one of that and that's out there already. And uh, that, that's really how, how it happened. You know, a lot of, a lot of research, a lot, a lot of legwork, a lot of nights on the internet, you know, mm-hmm. you know, waking up at three in the morning and having that idea and then getting on the internet and I like, oh, that's already done. And then, like I said, and then just formulated it, uh, had a great team that put our packaging together out of Napa. They also do the packaging for, uh, some some big wines out there, and and I think we came out with a with a great product. And you guys is one of the early adopters of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, wanted to make something versatile. Didn't want to make something that was just pigeonholed into one cocktail and could only use it for that. And, you know, we saw the spritz business coming on big and realized the American palate didn't like Aperol as much as the European palate. So we were able to garner a lot of the tropical spritz business and our margarita, which is the number one cocktail in the United States. We're now doing mango margaritas and. A lot of menus, and I know you guys even use it as a twist on a classic with a mango old-fashioned. Yep. You know, so we're using it a lot. Yeah, the versatility of the product. But again, you know, we ran into some speed bumps. Not everything was, you know, all sunny. We launched in January of 2020. Mm-hmm. You know what happened to the world? I think you and I spoke just before the pandemic. Yep. And then we spoke just as things started opening back up. I, I remember you were, and, and this is one of the things I love about you, you did whatever you had to do at the low. So I want to give you a lot of credit. I, I was Appreciate there one day it. you were working the coffee station. Yep. There another day you were putting out towels at the pool. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, that's what we have to do. We, we do what we have to do to just keep things alive. And it was a tough time for everybody. And uh, we all made it through. And, you know, as a new launch, it's tough because you can't do the tastings and you can't do a lot of the things that you need to do as a new product. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think because I'm going to, you know, tap myself on the shoulder a little bit. I think we made a great product and I think that's what helped us make it through. Now we're in every total wine in the state of Florida. We're in all public liquor stores. We're in over 1500 accounts throughout the state. And I guess that sort of led me to where we are today, where you mentioned the construction noise. I'm actually sitting in our offices uh, upstairs here. We're actually at the point of building the first distillery in the city of Miami, believe it or not, as popular as Miami is, no one's really done it. We're, we launched our second flavor, which is our Florida Citrus. Again, an original product. No one's doing a lemon-lime-orange combination. We do everything, mm-hmm. you know, all natural, no preservatives, no artificial flavors or colors. And we actually just uh, crafted America's Craft Liqueur Company. We now own that trademark. because we Wow. Knew, yeah. So we knew a lot of the liqueurs were coming out of Europe, mm-hmm. whether it's your Cointreau's or your Grand Marnier's. And no one was doing it domestically. And that's where I sort of saw what Tito's did saying they're, you know, America's vodka. Um, and people really want to support, you know, and buy American and buy domestic products. So we're hoping to take that foothold as the American craft liqueur company. We have three new flavors that we're launching this year. We have a hibiscus, staying true to our Florida roots. Mm-hmm. We have a, uh, a Cuban espresso, a true cafecito. Nice. I think it's going to be great. And then we have a watermelon because nobody's done watermelon the right way. It always tastes fake. It tastes yeah, it's like medicine. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't end the way we do it, as you know. Uh, we we use purees and extracts, and uh, we see the advent of that watermelon martini and watermelon margarita coming on big again. You know, it's incredible how things are cyclical. Like people are now using our citrus to as a new version of a, a lemon drop martini. 
And I never thought a lemon drop martini would ever come back. <laughs> no, it's all cycling back from the or late 90s, early 2000s. It's all yeah. coming back around. I mean, but, you know, I think there's an espresso martini on every menu now. I was shocked to start. So people just started asking for it. Yeah. at the bar. So I was like, well, where is this coming from? Must be on a show somewhere. <laughs> Someone has yeah. seen it somewhere. But I want to come back to what you mentioned, because I think it's important for people to know. Right. So I was sitting at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel. I get pitched, I don't know, 50 to 100 liqueurs and beers a month. And Buzzy came in as like the master branding. I'd never met Buzzy, but he was decked out just like he is today in his brand right in the jf hayden's mango liqueur brand I said, and he walked in with an orange hat i said all right this guy is interesting let me find out about him i didn't know you right and then it just it caught my attention then you pulled out your bottle which had a beautiful brand on it you got mentioned it was made in napa right mm -hmm. beautiful label different looking bottle you were like you knew what it needed right mm -hmm. so i think for people out there can you just talk about the importance of branding that you've yeah. done because i just think a lot of people don't get it. They have this, oh, here's my liquid. This is why it's important, right? Like you built a story around things. Yeah. That's, Did you talk about that? Like, was that in yeah, your head the whole time? I mean, you're on it. No, I, again, even back to, you know, most of the, the, the places in the business I've had, I was able to put that brand on people's lips and not because I'm, you know, God's gift to marketing. I just, it, it's the devil's in the details in, in anything you do. You know, at, at B&B, we used hose clamps from a, from car radiators as, as napkin holders, you know, it's the little touches yeah. and the little details uh, that are important. So when we came up with the Hayden's brand, people are like, well, what's Hayden's? Well, the Hayden Grove was the first grove in Miami in the year 1910 that grew a mango. We tell the story on, on the bottle. And I think you need that story in, in today's world to go along with your great product and your great packaging and the marketing behind it. People want to know the story, uh, especially when you're a, a craft beverage. There, there's got to be something behind it, like you said, besides just great juice, because, you know, there's a lot of great products out there. But what's mm -hmm. going to set you apart from everybody else? And that's why, you know, it, it took a long time to come up with the, the name and the story and the brand. And, and now, even though the Hayden Grove grew a mango, now it's equated with a quality liqueur. And that's why we use the Hayden name for the entire line of liqueurs. I love it. And so now you were building your brand up. You had somebody making your mango liqueur, right? And now you've decided, I'm going to make it myself, yes. right? In my distillery. Yes. How does that come about, right? Because that's now a whole different business, right? One from yeah. making one product to saying, I'm going to have an establishment. I'm going to make my own. I'm going to build a team. How does yeah. that start taking shape? Very lucky. Uh, you know, sat down with my partners who happen to be uh, also gators. Mm -hmm. uh, they both played on the uh, OA championship team with Tim Tebow. They were NFL All Pros. The Pouncey Twins, Mike played for the Dolphins. Marquise played for uh, the Steelers. Yep. Best partners uh, anyone could ask for. Um, we sat down and we said, hey, we see what's going on with the supply chain. We see how tough it is to get on other people's line doing a third party. Um, we've got a lot of business now we're doing. We have uh, the cruise lines coming up. Uh, we're working you know, with more hotels and bigger hotels and our drink lists and, you know, trying to expand our product line. Plus Miami's hot. Again, the light bulb goes off and says, Hey, if we could control our production ourselves, mm -hmm. if we can put bodies through here that people are going to pay us to now market our brand by doing tours and buying product in our retail store here. And lastly, being able to lower our cost of production. So it checked a lot of boxes for us. 
And lastly, I couldn't believe no one in Miami's ever had it, you know, done it. Yeah, I'm so, shocked. So yeah. the, the, the tourist capabilities that we're going to be able to have, we already are working with uh, Royal Caribbean to be an official offshore excursion, working mm -hmm. with the hotels and the concierges to put a program together to bring people over. You know, we said, hey, I, I think it's worth it. You know, a lot of people are like, well, okay, why don't you just put the money in and open more states? I mean, we want to own Florida. You know, that that's really our, our biggest thing is if we own Florida, everything else is easy. Got yep. to own our home state, roll the dice on it. You know, found a great building in uh, Alapata, which, again, we look at as an up-and-coming area, five blocks west of Wynwood. Mm -hmm. uh, not paying those crazy Wynwood prices. We have the Rubel Museum, which is one of the hottest things. Like during Art Basel, it was the epicenter for Art Basel for a lot of big events. We have hometown barbecue down the block that moved down here from uh, from Brooklyn. So we see this as the next neighborhood, as we spoke of before, where we have an ability to become a destination early on and then watch the neighborhood grow around us. I think that's awesome. Yeah, you've talked, you've done it at every place you've been. So that's why I wanted to tie the story through is you did it again, right? And so well, we haven't knowingly or unknowingly, we're, but you're we're there. Under, we're, we're under construction. So it's yeah. a, we, we, we can't check the, the block of success yes, uh, yet, but, but, but you know, the right we, neighborhood. Yeah, I think we're in the right neighborhood. The nice thing is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we get to make our own stuff. If I get a call tomorrow from the Lowe's or the Fountain Blue or Royal Caribbean or Carnival or Virgin and says, hey, I need a pallet. You know, we have the I don't have to wait three, four weeks to get on somebody else's line. With as hot as Miami is, I think we're going to put a lot of people through here as a mm -hmm. top tourist destination in Miami-Dade County, which will now when they go back to Ohio and they see it on the shelves there. It's going to emote that great, you know, that great time they had on vacation. So, you know, we're really looking at it as a, as a checking a lot of boxes for us and, and worth the investment. And at the end of the day, that's what you have to weigh out. Is it worth the investment to do it ourselves or continue to do it third party? And so now as you're building the distillery, how did you find you have a great master distiller? Right? Yep. How did you find her to be on the team? Right. And that's unique to say. Well, right? We've got a great team in general. You know, so Devin is our master distiller. She came from a. Uh, Woodford Reserve, uh, one of the mm -hmm. only uh, female master distillers in the United States. Yep. We have uh, our director of marketing, Mike, who I, I think you met also. You know, it, it, you know, it's building the right culture. You never want to be the smartest in the room because then you're the dumbest, especially when mm -hmm. you, you own your company. You want people that have skills that you don't have that can really just uh, add to the team, add to the, you know, add value to your company. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I've got my friend Josh Johnston on the podcast, CEO and co-founder at Trailway. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Because when you start having those weekends off, you got some time to think, you got some time to think of ideas. Is that where, you know, the next step of our journey comes, that entrepreneurial itch starts to come, that you're thinking of this new uh, new company that you want to start? You know, I... I I never really thought about it like that, but I think it, it can, it has to have been right. So, you know, all of a sudden my, my brain was able to relax a little bit more than it had the previous years. Um, I was able to think a little bit more strategically and honestly, you know, again, my whole role at that property was to start in one department, spend a couple months and do a deep dive, identify problems, help create solutions, implement them, and then also improve, improve the, the training plans as well. So I was literally there to be like a think tank, like, you know, really observe this, this, Department, you know, understand all the, the things that aren't working well and how can we overcome them as a team. And so uh, I just got in that problem solving, sorry, problem solving mindset. Um, you know, and during that journey, it, you know, one of the problems that kind of reared its ugly head was 
dirty room service tray sitting in the hotel hallways for too long. So um, it was definitely a pain point that popped up and uh, we, we tried to solve it internally. Uh, they had a, a software system uh, that was in existence at the hotel at that time for housekeeping and engineering. We tried to tailor that software to, to solve the dirty tray challenge, but we weren't able to do it effectively. And uh, yeah, so then honestly, I was still working at the Hilton, but became determined that I'm going to solve this problem. Like I was tired of hearing the, you know, not just the hotel executives there, but it just became obvious that this was a, a challenge for every property I'd ever worked at, you know, didn't matter which city, uh, city property, beach resort, what have you. Um, to some degree, dirty room service trays in the hotel hallway uh, was an, it was a problem, you know, to some extent. And so I, I started just researching like crazy and online and actually found one company. Uh, I reached out to them. They had a very interesting technology specifically for uh, tracking and monitoring room service trays. So I reached out to them. I was like, great, we're going to, we're going to purchase this. We're going to implement it. And then I was just going to move on to the next challenge. Uh, but there was a little bit of a twist. Um, they sent me a quote for $96,000. Uh, and then it was going to be ongoing, like $15,000 a year in annual fees. It was about a four to five month timeline. They're going to have to fly out to the hotel, implement all of this, um, these hubs into the hallways and sensors. And I honestly almost fell out of my chair. I was like, there's no way I'm going to my G GM and saying, Hey, you know, I've solved the dirty trade challenge. It's just going to cost us about a hundred thousand dollars. What do you think? Like I clearly yeah. Never had and you fire, Josh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do we renovate the ballroom or do we take care of the trays? Like that's not a, a realistic conversation. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I, you know, came across that, that challenge, uh, during that journey for sure. All right. So you have this itch in your brain, you know, I've, I think a lot of people are there where they have this idea and I, I think I could do this. Right. But you continue on thinking about this. So that's really what I, I want to dig into a little bit is how you created this company, Treyway. How did that start? Because you have this job, you have the problem. A lot of people say, all right, well, I can't do anything about it, but it stuck with you. How did you start building this company out? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the first thing I did um, is I actually reached out to a really good friend of mine. Um, he's named Will Lovett. He's, he's a co-founder of the company. Um, and just kind of explained the problem to him. He was the best computer programmer I knew, right? So first and foremost, I knew it was going to be technology related. And so we just kind of started chatting uh, late nights, weekends, and, and it was really more of a passion project to say, you know, here's the parameters uh, of what we think would work and, and how can we potentially create something uh, in that regard. And so, uh, you know, part of that conversation was uh, me taking a step back and, and honestly just doing a deep dive into, you know, why is this a problem? I mean, in the big scheme of things, it's such a silly, simple problem, but nonetheless, it's a problem. And it's not about, you know, most hotel GMs aren't sitting in their office right now being concerned really about that tray on the 14th floor. It's, you know, this afternoon when that negative comment comes in from TripAdvisor or a medallion, you know, feedback comes in and then people are complaining about something so simple as dirty trays. That's when the problem, you know, really kind of starts to frustrate people. And so I, I first and foremost just started to think, well, why is this a challenge? And, and really what I figured out was, at least my belief is that it simply boils down to a few simple outdated procedures. Uh, Couple of quick examples, you know, on the front end, even today, a lot of hotels will still deliver a tray to a guest, uh, maybe provide like a small paper tent card saying, hey, call us when you're done. Yeah. Uh, and the reality is uh, that did work once upon a time, you know, like, but nowadays uh, people have changed. Uh, most people don't like to make phone calls anymore, uh, at least not from a landline telephone for the purpose of tray retrieval. Uh, another simple outdated procedure that I thought through was uh, you know, the famous callback. I think some hotels maybe are still holding on to that, that process these days. But, um, you know, the idea of the callback is, hey, about one hour after delivery, let's just call the guests. We'll ask them, you know, how was your meal? Are you ready for tray retrieval? And 
again, this did work once upon a time. It, at one point, it was considered a very high level of service. But honestly, today, uh, most people don't want to be bothered. You know, most people want to be left alone. Uh, they'd rather sit and kind of relax in the room versus having someone, you know, call them on the landline phone. Uh, and then in that discovery process as well, on the back end, uh, what I found was most hotels were still using pen and paper, spreadsheets, whiteboards to try to track and manage all the activity throughout the hotel. And so when you think about, you know, this is back in 2017 and 18, almost everything in the world is automated. There's technology touching almost every portion of business except in-room dining in 99% of the hotels around the world. It's literally pen and paper for the most part. And so, uh, you know, and it, it seems simple, but as everyone that's worked in operations knows, you got the morning shift, the evening shift, the next day, uh, it can be a really tedious process for the team to stay on top of all, all the trade activity happening around the property. So that, that's really when I started to peel the onion back when I understood like, you know, okay, well, what is the problem? And then we started to decipher, well, how can we solve the front end and back end challenges? So is it you and your friend, Will? William or Will? Will. Oh, yeah. Will. So you and your friend, Will, you're talking about it. Like, man, I know there's a problem here. We could figure it out together. How do you start to, you, you do the research. What are the next steps? Because there's a big jump of, I have this idea and I think I have some solutions to like, I'm quitting my job and starting a company. <laughs> For sure. So, you know, there's a thing called product market fit. And, and I didn't even know that statement. Like, I didn't know what that was uh, when this all started. But come to find out, like, that's where I started. I just didn't know it was called that. So I literally just thought about all my experience with hotels and I started with the budget. Okay. Clearly you can't send a quote for, to someone for $96,000 and think that that's a realistic solution. So I started, I started with the price point that I thought would work within hotel budgets. Um, I knew that I was not interested in creating any kind of capital expenditure. I didn't want a 12 to 18 month sales cycle. I wanted to be something that would be literally affordable. And in most cases, like a few hundred bucks a month. It could be squeezed into the operations budget, um, you know, make a decision within a few weeks. Um, so we started with kind of the price point and the budget that I thought would work for hotels. And then we thought, well, you know, every hotel in the world, no matter where it's located, has Wi-Fi, right? Every guest checks in, they need Wi-Fi. And so I thought, well, what if the solution could be built around Wi-Fi capabilities? So that was kind of one stepping stone there. Um, and then in addition, two other kind of factors were, it's gotta be incredibly simple to implement. Like, don't get me wrong. I'd love to, to fly to Bora Bora and to Australia and, uh, you know, all the different beautiful places that we now support hotels in. But I knew from a budgeting standpoint, again, that hotels would not want to really incur that cost for this type of product. So, uh, we wanted to figure out a way to implement remotely anywhere in the world. And so it needs to be able to, you know, be done in multiple countries, but from our home office here in New Orleans. Uh, and then the very last piece of the puzzle that I really thought through was, uh, I worked, you know, side by side with so many room service servers, especially now, uh, most of them were, you know, kind of middle-aged, uh, they've been doing this role for 10, sometimes 20 years. They weren't necessarily the most tech savvy individuals. So I thought, you know, however our software is structured on the back end, it, it's gotta be so user-friendly. It's gotta be so intuitive that they really love it, it makes their, their day a little bit better. It makes their shift a little bit smoother. And I knew if we, if we didn't really focus heavily on that, then, you know, the servers aren't enjoying it, well, they're going to stop using it. And then obviously there's not going to be a, a, an opportunity for success on both sides. So uh, those are kind of the parameters we started with from a functionality and from a, a costing standpoint. And so you got, you got everything you need, because those are all great points, right? If it was sketching out the issue, you figured it out. But it's one thing to have it. Now you say, all right, we're going to create A. How did you get that next step? This is what it needs to look like. Yeah, so the, the one magic question, uh, Will asked me one day was, Hey, do you think people would click a button? <laughs> I said, 
I have no idea, but I'm so excited to find out. Uh, and, and so basically that was the, the one mystery piece of the puzzle that we needed to figure out is there's, uh, there was some technology that was kind of new to the market. It's called internet of things devices. Uh, we found some that were Wi-Fi, you know, enabled. And, and so we knew that those could connect to hotel Wi-Fi. And then we thought we could build, you know, basically a system around, uh, potentially a guest or housekeeping, clicking a button. Uh, but the question was, would they do that? Right. And so we did a little bit of, uh, beta testing and I mean a very little bit, and it was enough for me to say, yes, they will like, let's do this, let's move forward. Um, and so we basically, how we did that was, uh, we found a manufacturer, um, uh, to create this physical, you know, small button. It's about two inches by two inches. It goes right on the tray or trolley. And then, uh, so that as far as the guest is concerned, that's, that's all they see. Um, and then on the back end, uh, again, that's why I reached out to Will cause he was a, a great computer programmer. So he's the one that started working on, um, you know, the software on the back end. It's what the staff uses on a daily basis. Nice. So are you doing all this while you're still working at the Hilton, like kind of on the weekends and at nights? So everything I just explained. Yeah. It, so it started, uh, first conversation was around March or April of 2017. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to March of 2018. So it was about a 12 month period where it was nights, weekends, passion projecting type of approach. Uh, but by March of 2018, we had a full product, uh, ready to go. Um, so we lost our very first property, March of 2018. Um, that was, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't really make sense, um, to go to every property and to do a live launch. If the hotels we want to pay for it. We're happy to do it. Right. Uh, but in this particular case, um, Austin was, you know, a few hours drive from New Orleans. So naturally I, I did do this. Um, so went to the property, um, and was very excited to roll it out. There it was a thousand room hotel, brand new property. Uh, they had never even tested the product. It was a grand opening, but they, they believed in what we were doing after we you know, explained to them how it was going to work. And so that was kind of our, our kickoff to the company was launching that hotel. Uh, and, you know, it was, uh, proof enough to me that I said, all right, let's do this. And so a few weeks later, um, you know, a little bit hesitant, but, but I knew it was the right thing or the thing I wanted to do. So I put in my notice with Hilton and, and started to pursue it full time. All right, I'm going to rewind just a little bit for my own curiosity. So you're at the Hilton. You've got now the button that works. Finding a thousand room hotel that's going to take you on with no other track record is hard to do. Was it a connection you had? Was it just found you on your website that you had up running? Was it something you sold to somebody? Well, how did you get that very first one? Yeah, so it, the, the first hotel was absolutely a connection. Um, actually, and happy to share his name because he's such an incredible individual, Michael Rodriguez. Um, we worked together at Four Seasons Dallas. So while I was an in-room dining, uh, department head, he was the restaurant department head. So every morning, 6 AM, we worked side by side. Um, and then fast forward, I had started to work for Hilton. Um, and he actually started working for Fairmont. So it was the big Fairmont Austin, uh, where he had taken on a, a assistant director of food and beverage role. And so I just reached out to him when we were still in very early development. We didn't have a product. We, we didn't have, you know, really a final, um, manufactured product to show them. Uh, but yeah, just verbally walked him through exactly how it was going to work, how, you know, how intuitive it would be for the team. Michael, uh, put, you know, put me in touch with the F&B director and I basically walked them through a, a presentation of how it was going to work, even though we couldn't technically do beta testing before it opened. And, and they were pleased. They, they were excited. They were looking for something, you know, they didn't want to open the hotel and experiencing that same problem. So, so they were looking for something and, uh, obviously we were only, uh, only viable solution that was about to be on the market anyway. So it worked out well. Man, well, shout out to Michael Rodriguez, because I know how hard it is to sell something into a hotel if you can't say, well, where else is your product? So it's a great first step. So I got back into hotels. So for some of the listeners, I had a company, I sold that company, and then I got back into hotels at the Nobu Hotel 
Eden Rock Hotel in Miami Beach, you know, two hotels at one address. And my first challenge was to fix the room service department because, again, there was trays everywhere and it was in our guest comment scores. So I reached out to you and I remember you were great and you didn't come out. We only talked on the phone. And this was before really Zoom was being used at all. So it was all over the phone and I got your product and it worked right away. And that was in 2019. So you're really a year into it. I didn't know it at the time. You were a pretty new company, not even a year old. Yeah, no, I, I remember it. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, honestly, pre-pandemic, uh, almost all of our sales processes were over the phone. Um, you know, I mean, imagine yourself pre-pandemic, like getting very busy food and beverage directors to sit in their office, click on a Zoom link. Like that was uh, not an easy task. It was much easier yeah. to just set a time. Uh, they'd probably be busy doing something else, but just call them directly on their cell phone. And then we would kind of verbally walk through exactly how things would work, obviously uh, on a phone call. And that seemed to work really well. And then, you know, post-pandemic nowadays, uh, uh, everyone's comfortable with Zoom. And obviously you can screen share and share visuals. And so uh, that's certainly a much better approach nowadays that people are comfortable uh, with that process. Uh, and so for listeners, I'll do the infomercial for Josh, but I've loved using it. Um, it's really easy to use, like he said in, in, in explaining it, but anyone can use it and it's easy to start with. And I've used it at the Eden Rock. I've used it at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel. I've really enjoyed it as a product. So I give a big shout out to Josh on there. So Josh, what is now coming up? You know, you've got this, you're growing. I've seen it all the time on LinkedIn. You're getting new hotel after new hotel after new hotel. What's on the on the radar now? Yeah. So, uh, and if you don't mind, Steve, just a quick, yeah. 60 seconds, uh, just the product and how it works for, for maybe anyone that's never heard of it. Um, ultimately, there were those two challenges that I mentioned, right? On the front end, guests don't want to call. They don't want people calling them. And then on the back end, using pen and paper. So ultimately, how we ended up deciding to, to, to solve that was uh, today we provide these small clickable devices, which we already talked about, but uh, our new product is, is typically custom branded. So it'll have the hotel logo, you know, it can say click for retrieval. It can say done dining, question mark, please press, whatever, whatever messaging aligns with the brand standards. Uh, that small device goes right on the tray or trolley. It's delivered with the guest mail. Uh, come to find out, because we didn't know when we started this, on average, about 83% of people will click. So the good news there is the majority of guests do end up clicking the button. Uh, and then the other good news for that 17% that don't, just as easy for housekeeping, engineering. So any internal staff sees a dirty tray in a hallway or guest room, they can click that same button. So it's so much faster than you know, even housekeeping, picking up the phone and calling. And then the other thing very quickly that I mentioned on the back end is just that incredible user-friendly software platform. So um, today, hotels can access it through uh, any desktop computer. They just go to trayway.com or they can download the mobile app on any Apple or Android device. So phone, tablet, touch device, iPad, anything like that. And the beautiful part is for the first time, they know exactly what's happening in the hotel. Like they would know, hey, there's 30 trays upstairs. They know how many are on each floor, what room they're located in, the original delivery time. So it's just amazing for the team to, to know exactly what's happening, where it's happening. And then for the managers, in addition to that, uh, which is obviously helpful, everything is time-stamped and tracked for accountability purposes. So every night at midnight, you get an automated email with a recap of all the activity from the previous day. So they know how well their team's performing. It's got all the fine details in case some type of follow-up needs to happen with a particular rain. Uh, yeah, so that's the front end and the back end. Just thought I'd highlight that really quickly. Oh, you, words. Yeah, you described it much better than I did. <laughs> so, no, no. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'm excited to know that you're also developing some new things, you know, just recently. You know, maybe you can touch on that one for 30 seconds just so everyone can hear the other tools you're building. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, yes, yeah, so we rolled out uh, what's called walk it in. So the, the most common 
word in any kitchen in, in America, you walk into it and the chef's yelling out, walking in. So we have walking in digital order. So now, uh, whether it's in a hotel uh, room, so for inner dining, I guess can scan a QR code. Uh, but unlike a static menu, this will take them to a web-based digital menu. Sort of like an Uber Eats or DoorDash experience, except there's no app to download. They don't have to create an account. It's all frictionless. Uh, but right there from their phone or tablet, uh, they can select their menu items, add it to their shopping cart, and then check out. Uh, it can be room charge only. We can handle payment. So it just depends on, on how the hotel wants to handle that. And on the back end, obviously, the, the hotel receives the digital order. Uh, you know, uh, very, very great enhancement to, to a lot of hotels ordering experience, but can also be for beach service, for pool service. So it can be used well outside of of interim dining. And then we have a third product that we're also really excited about. Uh, it's still in development, so it's it's not rolled out just yet, but it's going to be all about um, guest feedback and the guest experience and getting real world feedback on, on your team. So you'll know exactly how your team's performing. Uh, you'll know which employees are doing the best, which ones need the, the, the opportunities to kind of be coaching, you know, coached and trained better. Uh, and so we're really excited about that. It's basically, it's going to be similar to our core competency of a IOT kind of internet of things device. Uh, but all around feedback uh, from the guest that can be used in a productive manner. Yeah, and I love that it's being built by people who actually worked in hotels and operations at a high level. So I, I think that's really important for listeners. If you're going to bring on technology, bring on the right technology, because if you don't, it usually gives you a headache. Today, I'm very excited to have a dear friend, Paul Breslin, Managing Director of Horwath HTL. Why make that change into being your own business? It's, you know, it's, it's a niche. I mean, it's an itch. It's something you want to do or you don't. And in hindsight, I did, I had gotten some great mentors before I did. I started two years out, which you did, you know, started talking years before you left. And it was funny at one point, your dad was in a law firm and he wanted to go out on his own. Uh, did you ever know that? Did he went on his own one time? I remember that. It didn't last yeah. very long though. No, he, was, <laughs> he, he quickly said, this is not for me. I mean, you have to really be you, like you, you have to be very willing to do a lot of things and real hard work. And and not that your dad doesn't work hard. I don't know there's a lawyer that works harder, but just some people are good for entrepreneurs. Some are more better in the corporate, you know. And, and I mean, look at how many years he's been with that firm. It's incredible. And, you know, I couldn't do that. I, I was too. And I didn't want to move, you know, out of family and kids. And I was like... Right, you so, moved a lot. You moved all over the country. I moved already. By the time I took started my business, I had moved eleven times, and I was like, okay. Yeah, which I give up to you because I, not that I, I never wanted to. I just liked my city, and that was how I could move up. Was you had to hop around different hotels, yeah, right, to too. move up. I didn't want to leave. Well, I wasn't as good as Steve Turk. Oh, I yeah, I had to. Move. Maybe I played the politics a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it was fun. And, you know, I mean, I, my story is my story. You know, the, the, I think the message for everybody is go create your story. One of the first things I do when I teach at Georgia State and have, I'm in my 15th year and I, I have the students write their first bio. I said, have you written your bio? And they're like, what's a bio? You know, and I, mm -hmm. and I tell them it's your story. Just tell it in a third person as if you're the public relations director of yourself and write it. And, you know, where you're from, were you on the baseball team? Were you, did, you know, were you a really great basketball player like Steve Turk? You know, you know, what's your story? What made you different? You know, and something fun, something different. Some, if you can talk about promotions or achievements. And then throughout the semester, I have them rewrite it a couple more times. You know, it's really what do you want your story to be? You know, who are you and what do you want to be? And that way it's your story. 
you know, if you're in our business, you better be very committed to helping other people. That's what I believe deeply. And that's really the success of our business, you know, no matter what level you're at. Today, we invest in asset managed hotels. We Yeah, so let's talk about today. So you started your company, you started Panther Hospitality, which then you've gone into now what is called Horwath HTL. So tell us, tell us, yeah. what, what is that? So I actually I started Panther Hospitality in mm-hmm. December 8th of 2005, about 30 days after officially, legally I started that. Guess who, what law firm I called to help me start it. <laughs> yep. But I had started it really two years before, just like that, be your, in your mind, the GM. So I started being the owner. The development side really excited me. So when I, before I even left Sheridan, and I was open and honest with the guys who I work for, I said, listen, we're, I'm looking at some real estate, you know, maybe you guys can invest with it. And they're like, you're running our hotel. I said, oh yeah. And you will have the best results you ever had this year. Don't worry. You'll never, I'm not going to take anything away from what you're doing. It's, it's nights and weekends. They were very concerned about it, but they, you know, they said, okay, we understand. But I, I really worked very hard to never give them any feeling that I was, because I wasn't really doing anything. I didn't want to legally start my business until I was on my own, but I was pretending and I was visualizing it. I would go to seminars and workshops. And, you know, I, I heard a friend who said to me, you need a good accountant. So I got a good accountant. I said, you need a great real estate lawyer. So I got a really great real estate lawyer. Another friend said to me, get, you know, some advisors. So I had a board. I had a board of advisors. And really, this was the foundation. And But I didn't, you know, having a goals and having written goals and having this culture of learning was deep embedded in me already. So everything I was doing was new. But that wasn't, that was okay, because that's kind of how I ran my, you know, how I was an employee. Yeah, you're curious. That's awesome. Yeah, I was curious. I love yeah. it. And we saved, we were ready. We saved the money. It was and the and the to the credit of Amerimar and Angela Gordon, they really funded my first year. They were so good to me. I was good to them, but they were really good to me. They basically launched me in the first year. They gave me a big check. And they are who are they? That's who owned the Sheridan. They got eight million cash, so they were pretty happy. Yeah. And they eventually sold it for a lot of money. But you couldn't go to your boss and say, you owe me or anything like that. No one felt they owed each other. It was just gratitude. You know, it was just, I was grateful for what they did. It was a launching pad. And then it was hard, you know, to get your first customer. But you come to realize the people who you know, know you best are really where your source of business comes from. And then once you take care of one, they refer you to two. And then two becomes four and four becomes 10. But it's all about raving fans. If you have raving fans... They are your marketing department. And um, yeah, you stuck in my head because that's now in the short time I've gone, that's what's happened, right? Like now yeah. I have a second hotel client based off of someone yeah. being a raving fan, right? It's just amazing to see how it continues to grow that way. Right. And you, you, you have to have the knowledge, experience, trustworthiness, capability. Mm-hmm. All those things are tools in your tool belt, but they don't get your business until you, you got to go out and earn it. You've got to get everybody to say, hey, I, I trust this guy. And, you know, we, in 2021, we transacted, we sold two hotels for owners. They made millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars. We're very fortunate that we have the opportunity to do that. And we'll have, we, we think, 
you know, we took on a portfolio of six Marriott's about 10 years ago and we turned it around and just made them millions. And they became our, they became our cheerleaders. Like they, they went out of their way to go find because every hotel had 27 owners. So they became, you know, if social media back then was a lot, you know, it was, it, as much as it is today, it would have, it was crazy. And that's really, oh, seven years ago, though, I, I was approached by Harwath. Eight years ago. So you had your company, Panther. Horwath yeah. comes to you and says? They literally, ironically, the guy who came to me just joined Harwath, but he was a paid recruiter. And so he called me and he says, "We can I meet with you when I'm at Hunter Investment Conference? And I said, yeah. And what do you do? And he tells me what he does. I said, oh, you're in what I do. So we went to have coffee and two minutes into it, he's, he pushes a, a logo a Harwath company brochure to me. And he says, what do you think? And I said, for what? He says, do you want to be part of Harwath? And I said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't know that's what this is about. I'm, I'm very happy being an entrepreneur. He says, no, you stay an entrepreneur. It's just like a underbranded hotel becoming a Hilton. And I said, oh, it's a franchise. And he said, it's not quite a franchise, but it's similar. Mm-hmm. And I said, tell me more. And so we sat there for two hours and he gave me the phone numbers of the people who were owned Harwath offices. I called them and they were great. And I said, I'm interested. I'm very interested. And I called my mentors, like my advisors, my board and everyone. And they all were supportive, Bob included. Of course, Bob was had two pages of, of what to think about. Yes. A lot of notes. I don't know, all through, you know, think of this, check on this. Yeah. And so it turned out to be great. It's a global network of firms. And I was able to become part of Harwath. Within less than a year, I became the co-chair of America. And then within another three months, I was the chairman for North America. It's amazing. And I, re- I held that position for six years, and there's nothing better than being the immediate past chairman. But I really didn't, that wasn't my goal. I didn't want to be, I have no interest in being the chair of Horwath. I want to run my own business. I want my business to grow, you know. And But I felt my job was to help the others. Now this guy was doing it as a marketing guy, and he liked, he loves it. And it's, he's in, you know, it's a big ego, and I, I don't give a crap, you know. Well, yeah. you're crushing and doing what you're doing. I see it. And yeah, I love it. Love it. You know, what I want to get to, because I know I've gone over on the time I had with you, and I'm, I want to be, no, no, it's, it's your time, right? But I want to make sure that for someone starting out, maybe they're like that manager that you were over, you know, in training and just getting started. Right now is a challenging time, right? Especially in, in the hotel or hospitality, you know, vacation rentals, restaurants everywhere, right? But in the hospitality, what, industry, what would you tell someone coming up right now if they want to get to that GM level or CEO level? What would you tell them to do? Well, I'm a first praying man of faith. I believe you first start with your faith and pray feverishly as if there's nothing else that matters. But I also believe you have to have written goals. Don't just write. Don't just dream about or say it. Say what you want to say. Write it out and put a date to it and put real action items to it. So prayer and written goals with action plan, and then do a 360, meet with the people around you and learn what you you don't know. I'll tell you very quickly, I was in a Bible study with my wife, we were sharing a Bible 
and there was in Proverbs, there was a basically a wise man heeds advice, a fool will rebel or resist. And my wife circled it, wrote my initials next to it. And I thought, oh my God, she's telling me that I'm not taking advice well. And you know, your ego gets in your way. Ego is edging God out. And you can have a good ego and that's called exalting God only. And one of the things that I just learned is that I really need to change. I need to become more humble. I need you know, it's not about being the biggest guy in the room. It's about being the most humble in the room. So I think having written goals, being deep in your faith, but really asking people, what am I missing? People who will be honest with you. Right. And people are afraid to do that. Yeah. And people who you ask are like, I'm not saying anything. Are you kidding me? I want to be your friend. I don't want to lose our friendship, you know. And, you know, you'll ha- you even have to prime the pump. You have to say, look, I'll tell you one thing if you tell me one thing will help each other. What's my blind spot? You know, what don't I see? What am I truly missing? And if you can surround yourself with people that you trust and that are successful, that will truly tell you that, even if you have to pay them. I mean, they'll do it for your golf game, right? They'll tell you, oh man, your slice, your game or your basketball game. But you need mentors and mentees that will tell you real feedback. So those are my quick thought. I have many more, but they're for sale. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll end on that. So if somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way to find you? Call Steve Turk. (laughs) Call me. He's on my advisory board. You can check him out. He's right there on Um, the website. I'm on LinkedIn, you know, Harwath HTL, you can reach me, but there's a lot of us on there. I still have my pantherhospitality.com, but I don't mind sharing my phone number. It's 770-880-4143. But if you want to reach me, Paul Breslin, you're you know, hotel guy or whatever, you'll, I'll, I'll come up. But I may not be, you know, and I'd love to talk to you if you want, but the, the, you'd be surprised. It's just like hotel sales. Start with the people closest to you first. Mm-hmm. You know, don't go out selling to your customer in New York if you're in Miami until you really, you know, what do your neighbors think of you? What do your employees think of you? What do your, you know, investors, you know, how, start with the closest to you. And then work your way out. You'd be amazed at what they'll tell you if you're willing to listen. I think that's a great advice and a, and a great piece to end on. Paul, I appreciate you so much Thank for you. taking the time to be on the podcast. I learned a ton and I've always talked to you. I appreciate you always sharing so openly. And, and I'm so proud of you, Steve. I just got to tell you, you, you've got chutzpah, you're smart, and you recognize that your wife is smarter than you. That's just <laughs> Listen, I marry up. That's how we work Me here. Too, baby. Me too. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. Another edition of the the podcast is done and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.